Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, an emotional Peter slowly takes the stand. Do you feel that they were misunderstood? Yes. The embattled former Ottawa police chief testifies before the Rouleau inquiry, past witnesses painting a picture of chaos and dysfunction. We will hear what Peter slowly had to say about the protest that terrorized people in his city. And... Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics on CPAC. A moment to say thank you. Peter Van Dusen is signing off. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The name of Ottawa's embattled former police chief has come up more than once at the Rouleau inquiry. Criticized for his leadership, his interactions with other police forces and the chaos that was the convoy protest, Peter slowly finally got his chance to take the stand, at one point getting emotional as he talked about the efforts of his former force. They were doing their very best under inhuman circumstances, like the city was, like the community was. It was too cold and it was too much. But they did their very best. And I'm grateful to them. And they should be celebrated. Not celebrated, that's the wrong word. They should be understood. Do you feel that they were misunderstood? Yes. To walk us through this first day of testimony from Peter Slowly, we're now joined by our journalist panel. We are once again joined this week by Tonda McCharles, who is covering the inquiry for the Toronto Star, and Christopher Nardi, who is covering the inquiry for the National Post. Hello to the two of you. Hi, Michael. Hi. Listen, uh, Tonda, I, I wonder if you might start us out here and talk to us uh, about the significance of this testimony. Because, you know, Peter Slowly, uh, of course, he has figured largely in the inquiry, but this is his first day to appear and to testify. Just how important is his testimony? It's important. It's important in this respect. He's trying to push back uh, against a picture that's been painted of him so far in most of the other testimony we've heard of a police boss who was basically uh, under strain of the stress of the situation, suspicious of anyone who was coming in to help, running down in the chain of command to micromanage operations, and that he was basically very cynical or suspicious of sort of the other forces that were trying to help or the political leaders who were uh, also sort of overseeing all of this. And slowly in his own testimony, he's really trying to paint a different picture of himself. He's trying to cast himself as a progressive, caring, compassionate police leader who did believe in negotiations, not just cracking heads in the, an enforcement operation. And so for him, his own reputation, this is important. But look, there's been a wealth of information so far that has uh, essentially cast his leadership um, as as not up to the moment of the crisis last winter. Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick up on the point that, that Tonda makes there about being a, a more sensitive leader, Christopher, uh, because we did see that emotional moment with Chief Bordelow on the stand. And here he is uh, fighting back tears. But I'm wondering, 
if that has to do with his feelings about his members or just how much stress that he's under right now? I think it's a little bit of both, Michael, quite frankly. I do feel that he looked at how his officers were being treated during the convoy and felt for them, right? Felt bad. There was a lot of criticism towards the Ottawa Police Service. And, you know, presumably we're going to find out a lot of it was warranted because we are seeing a lot of dysfunction internally at the police service, at the city, and just throughout multiple levels of, of response to this crisis, right? So he clearly had this emotional reaction. I don't think that we can necessarily omit the fact that he may also be trying to increase public sympathy, right? It looks good. He probably knew that clip would play on TV. It would run in the, you know, we would talk to about him as a teary-eyed police chief in the media coverage. And he's basically just trying to kind of rehabilitate his reputation amongst police forces, but also in the eyes of the public. So I don't think it was disingenuous. He obviously, this was an extremely difficult moment for him. Uh, he did lose his job over it as well. And it continues to be a difficult moment for him, clearly. Uh, but I do think that, and some of the messages I've gotten even personally, is that a lot of people aren't necessarily biting, right? They don't necessarily believe that he uh, deserves, let's say, the sympathy that I think he's trying to get. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there, there are these big charges that he's going to have to uh, answer for. One of them has to do with how he dealt with the intelligence that was out there, because we did hear from the OPP and even uh, slowly subordinates that there was intelligence to suggest, for example, that the protests would not just be a one-weekend affair, that uh, the protesters, at least some of them, were going to stay until all mandates were dropped and the government resigned. Talk to us, Tonda, a little bit about how uh, Slowly addressed that, because that is a fairly big charge that he was not listening to the intelligence that was available. Well, stunningly, one of the things that Slowly admitted here is that he hadn't actually read one of his own internal uh, officers' assessments of the threat that was coming. Look, there are stacks of intelligence warnings that we've been shown already from the OPP. Uh, Peter Slowly says he saw them as early as two weeks before the protests arrived, and yet he still maintains that there wasn't enough detail in there that would have informed any police service in the country of what was coming Ottawa's way, that it was going to be a protest that would entrench for the long haul. And he says that that only dawned on him and his force, uh, you know, the first weekend. Today he's saying that dawned on him on the Saturday morning. Well, uh, he's testified previously to an inquiry lawyers that it dawned on him uh, around uh, the weekend from Saturday, the first weekend, into the Tuesday. And that's when the Ottawa cops really started trying to come up with a new plan. He says, oh, no, we weren't trying a new plan. Uh, we weren't trying to reorient ourselves. We were just, you know, building on what we knew was a difficult problem and defending that they were prepared to adapt and to, to, to basically deal with violence or whatever would erupt. But basically, they had only planned for a traffic event, a two-day traffic blockage. And so some of this, you know, slowly blaming the intelligence, blaming the intelligence for not being detailed enough, saying, why weren't the RCMP and other federal partners giving us better intelligence? Uh, it's all hindsight is 2020, isn't it? Um, the fact is there are warnings that were there and available to the Ottawa police that were basically ignored. Well, and not only from uh, agencies like the OPP, there was, for example, social media, the, the, the messages out there from protesters themselves stating that they were going to stay a long time. Christopher, talk to us a, a bit about that, because there is the intelligence that is given by officials. There's also the intelligence that essentially are open source that could be available to anybody. 
Well, honestly, Mike, I don't think there's more open source than opening up almost any newspaper that was documenting the convoy mm -hmm. as it descended on Ottawa, quoting almost all the organizers saying, we will not leave Ottawa until the, the vaccine mandates are gone, or we will not leave Ottawa until the COVID-19 public health measures are gone. It was a message that organizers repeated ad nauseum from day one and was repeated in the media. So it does feel so surprising for police chiefs and, and politicians possibly to be able to look at the public now and say, well, listen, we had no idea because, I mean, people can say that they come in for, you know, a long time, but they always leave. They always leave. But there are so many indications that this protest was unique in so many ways. It had fundraised millions of dollars online. It was gathering support, not necessarily losing it at many steps of the way as it converged on Ottawa from everywhere across the country, right? And so he received this. And, and what I find interesting, Michael, also, is that we've heard from police officers about how either they warned upwards that they felt like there was this, quote, bizarre disconnect, as some have said, between what the intelligence was saying and what the OPS was planning for that weekend. Or, alternatively, we've heard people say, well, what was reported to me was that it will just be a weekend. But I don't feel like we've seen the actual intelligence, intelligence or actually heard, you know, people in the OPS say I'm the one who was saying it's just a weekend or this is the document that I'm relying on that was telling us it's just a weekend ignore every other warning we've gotten so we've gotten a lot of proof that they should have known it was long and I feel like the proof that that uh, kind of supported the weekend only uh, theory is very scarce and very hard to find. Mm -hmm. And there's also the issue of a broken command structure, you know, Tonda, because we have in the in the past few days already heard criticisms of the uh, the Ottawa Police Service being dysfunctional, that there was chaos amongst the ranks, and really slowly did did not dissuade us of that opinion because he too is acknowledging there seemed to be a broken command structure. Oh, yeah. No, he's not denying that in any way. And in fact, you know, the information isn't like from the outside looking in. A lot of the forces were saying, oh, my God, the Ottawa police are in a mess. Internally, the Ottawa police are admitting they were a mess. Um, the two top deputies came and said, you know, the pandemic had reduced, depleted their ranks. Uh, they had many senior departures. And by the time this crisis hit, they didn't have the staff to deal with it at the best of times. And now it was the worst of times suddenly. And slowly himself is saying, yeah, I had to go down across uh, the boundaries of where I wouldn't ordinarily go into operational level commanders and say, you know, we've got a plan to, well, a plan to get them out of here. And, you know, he said, in his words, he said, I wanted them to implement the hell out of it. Uh, look, if he's using that language at the inquiry, you one can only imagine what he, language he used in the room with his officers. Uh, it was a very tense, strained time. He said he lost confidence in two of his top deputies over a decision to change operational commanders midstream when, in the early days, like in the first week. And at, at that point, he says that he felt they were in a national security crisis. So look, this was a force not just under strain, but buckling, crumbling under the strain and begging for help, outside help. And that outside help was very long in coming because the outside agencies said they didn't have a clue what Ottawa and Peter Slowly wanted to do with their officers. So honestly, a big mess. And uh, I, I can't stress enough, even though we all saw it and covered it, how uh, shocking it is to hear all these details and to see just what really the state of affairs was there. And we continue to learn more. This is just day one of two days of testimony for Peter Slowly. So uh, perhaps the three of us will come together again and speak about this. But for now, thank you for adding uh, your voices to the story that's unfolding right now in the inquiry. 
Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. And that is Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Star and Christopher Nardi from the National Post. And all of the reports, the briefings that I was uh, receiving through my chain of command was that this was going to be a weekend event, some arriving the Thursday, more arriving the Friday, the bulk arriving for planned or, or at least scheduled events on the Saturday and the Sunday, uh, that there might be some remnant that would stay behind, but that remnant would be similar to uh, other demonstrations that had come through where people stayed in the nation, national capital region for a variety of reasons, but in some cases setting up small tent cities um, that would at some point over the subsequent days, weeks, and in some cases months, would be gradually through a, a, a measured approach um, with multi-agency involvement from NCR and the city. They would be eventually moved either to a better location or moved back to wherever they had originally come from. I want to be clear. I've expressed my gratitude to Commissioner Creek on multiple occasions, even after my resignation, about the quality of the intelligence support that we received from the OPP and specifically around the quality of the Hendon reports. But in the totality, sir, um, I do not recall, and to this day, even with the benefit of hindsight, I do not have any clear impression or saw any clear conclusions that we were going to have anything more than what I was being briefed on by my team. This was going to be a Thursday, Friday, mainly Saturday, Sunday event with the potential for a smaller group to remain behind, but in numbers that we had managed previously. Assuming that even on the 28th, Commissioner, that we decided to lock down the city, close off all the interprovincial bridges and the off, the off ramps from the 416 and 417 highways, we would have needed, in Deputy Chief Bell's uh, estimation, 2,000 officers. I think it would have actually been more. Even if that was our wish, even if that was the clearest conclusion that came from any of the Hendon reports or any other combination of intelligence or legal opinions, on the 28th of January, we were not going to get 2,000 extra officers into the city and deployed on a plan that could execute and implement anything that relates to this. With his thoughts on Peter Slowly's testimony so far, we're now joined by Charles Bordelow. He is the former chief of the Ottawa Police Service. Chief Bordelow, thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good to see you. So a lot to talk about here, uh, but I do want to begin really with that moment that we just shared with our audience. Former Chief Slowly really having an emotional time uh, as he was testifying, talking about the members of his force. But it was also interesting to hear his words. He said it was too much they did their best. What do you make of that? Well, I, and I've seen my son testify uh, during the parliamentary committee, and it's a, it's a point in time where he becomes emotional when he talks about uh, its officers, and uh, and I get that because uh, they went through hell. Uh, that those those uh, three weeks were very tough on them, uh, at a time when there's the public eye was on them and uh, lots of uh, criticism geared towards uh, the auto police service. So he felt for them, uh, whether it be the weather, the circumstances they're working on, and their inability to to gain control of the situation. Uh, I think it was a moment of, of empathy towards uh, what the officers were uh, were feeling. Mm -hmm. And yet there are still these gaps, uh, these questions that remain in, in people trying to understand. For example, the matter of intelligence. Uh, Chief Slowly, in one uh, instance, talking about the details he was getting before the protests rolled into town, uh, 
saying that nothing suggested that the protesters, protesters would actually be there for a long time. But again, the, the intelligence suggested otherwise. What does that tell you about the failure of that intelligence or maybe the failure to interpret that intelligence? I think it's a lot of the failure to interpret the, uh, the intelligence. You've got the OPP on one hand who is producing these products, who's telling them this is a longer protracted event. Yet the auto police service, including the chief, uh, who would admittedly skim some of the reports, uh, not believing that this will be a long protracted event, thinking this will be a, only a weekend. Interesting as well, he points to the national framework of intelligence failing him. Uh, yet the Hendon reports talked about a national movement. So I'm not too sure what other elements uh, uh, RCMP or the Integrated Threat Assessment Center would have provided him that would have helped him understand better what was going on. Because the UPP reports were fairly clear. This, this is a national movement coming to Ottawa, and uh, there was connection between uh, the different points uh, and elements in the convoy. And it was a longer ter a duration point. They just chose to for whatever reason, uh, uh, not take that into consideration uh, as a, from their planning perspective. Mm -hmm. So uh, to, again, to your point, a failure to interpret the intelligence. Let's also talk about communication, though, because even before uh, Chief Slowly took to the stand uh, this week, he, there was talk about the chaos, even amongst the, the command structure with Ottawa police. Uh, based on what you heard from Slowly today, uh, what stands out for you? In a, in a command and control uh, scenario, you need clarity, clarity of communication. Your message and your mission and uh, your words matter. Uh, and there seems to be a pattern here uh, internally and externally that his words are being misinterpreted or not clearly understood. Uh, whether it's the issue around uh, this is not a policing solution or when he's talking to his instant commanders around uh, direction that he's providing in an operational environment we should have been at the strategic level uh, and different interpretations as to what his deputies and his commanders thought he was saying uh, and you see the differences in notes that were being taken so I found in my in my uh, tenure as a chief that words matter and you have to be very clear in your messaging and uh, so that there is no misunderstanding as to what you are saying and what your intent is. Uh, and quickly here, because I'm losing time, uh, Slowly's next appearance will be on Monday. Anything you're keeping uh, a keen eye on? Well, we saw that, that uh, Chief Slowly has a, a tendency of, of, of uh, showing a lot of emotion and also being defensive. Uh, so some anger issues are coming out a bit, I think, in, in some of his testimony. Uh, or de defensiveness, perhaps, is the... Is the, is the more proper word. Uh, so he's going to have to be careful around that, especially during cross. Uh, he needs to be uh, straightforward and bring bring some answers that, that people are looking for. But but his tone, he needs to be careful of, of the tone that he's using. Charles Bordelot, thank you very much for the time today. You're quite welcome. Well, we wanted to end today's program with a special guest and a special, although sad, occasion, which is why the background is different. Uh, after 21 years with CPAC, Peter Van Dusen retires after today, so there was no way we were going to let him go before saying a goodbye on air. So, Peter, 
Van Dusen joins us right now. Uh, congratulations. Thanks very much, Michael. That's a little odd. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're so used to being on yeah, this side I, of the desk. I don't mind it here, though. This is fine. No, uh, how does it feel, though? Like, I mean, you, you're you retiring after today, and I and this is actually not really a goodbye, because I'm sure we're going to be calling you out of retirement from time to time to still be part of the programming. But how does it feel to, to essentially end your daily duties? You know, it feels... Um, it feels great in the sense that uh, I'm going to be spending more time with my family, which everybody wants to do at, yeah. at, a, at a certain age. It also feels uh, uh, really good, I think, to know, um, you know, what I'm, what I'm leaving. I mean, we had uh, such a great team of committed people to the to the notion of public service and uh, giving people a front row seat on democracy, and I was proud to be part of that team. So. It feels really good to have had that experience over 21 years here and you know 40 plus years uh, working in other uh, media outlets. And uh, you know knowing that you're here now and knowing That's that uh, some other very, very good people uh, are joining CPAC, mm -hmm. I think that says a lot about uh, where the operation is. But most of all, I'm, I'm just really uh, happy and, and proud of the fact that uh, as a team of people, we. We built something that I think has become a, a pretty important service to, to Canadians and may become even more important uh, given the sort of media climate we're in. Yeah, yeah. well, you, you know, I, I will say, uh, as people speak to me on the streets, you know, they, they congratulate me for this new role, but they all note the big shoes that I have to fill. And I was like, I'm not filling Peter's shoes. I'm, I'm going to follow the path that you've essentially created for us to follow. But... Uh, when you think of your own contribution, I know you're very humble about this, but when you think about the own contribution that you have made to, to really Canadian democracy, to Canadian media, political journalism in this country, what do you hope you'll be remembered for? Um, you know, that's an interesting question, and I, I have to be honest, I've, I've really never given it much thought. I've, I've looked at this, uh, I never really looked at it as a job, and it's a little different than a lot of other places, as, mm -hmm. as you know. It, it's it's more of a calling. You know, I've often said to people, if, if you need to desperately be seen on television, maybe CPAC's not the place for you in terms of, a, of the anchor because we've always put the sort of content first. And, and once you have that sort of driving your daily conversations, they always be, uh, become about the content. It's mm -hmm. always more important for people to see what's being said and who's saying it and uh, showing them all of it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as opposed to snippets of it. Uh, that you see on the nightly news, and I'm not here to trash the nightly news. They they have a certain uh, role they play as well. But we always uh, sort of understood the role here, and I always understood it was to put yourself, you know, um, in the sort of background, except to be the sort of traffic cop and the person sort of guiding uh, the content, but not influencing the content, mm -hmm. not trying to tell people what to think about the content. So, I guess if I'm proud of anything, it's that. Um, I was smart enough to grab the opportunity when it came up to yeah. be part of a place like this and have the content sort of dictate the kind of role you played as opposed to saying, I'd rather do this, this, and show them this, that, this. No, this is where the action is. And they deserve to be able to see it all and decide for themselves what's being said, what's being decided, and what it means to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned looking forward to spending more time with your family. And, you know, CPAC, we, we actually had a special retirement party for you earlier uh, in the week. And it was nice to see your wife there, your kids there. What have they meant for you over the years? Because I think people get a sense of it, but to be a journalist, especially a political journalist in this country, it is early morning, late at night, mm -hmm. 
day after day, often weekends, often holidays. How important has your family been through these 21 years for you? Well, you know it, you're a dad. So, I mean, the, the challenge is always, um, the challenge is always to try and balance those things. And you, you know, I suppose, um, I, I come from a, a bit of a different family. I have six brothers and sisters, and at one point all of us worked in journalism. My dad was a journalist. So there's at least, a, at least within your own family, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a sort of barometer there for how, how, how valuable time is. And so, um, you know, my wife, Anna, and my kids, uh, Alex and Madison, yes. Um, you know, I always felt, uh, I always understood what I was missing, but I always tried to do what I could to maximize the time I had with them. But you're right. Um, in the last, you know, couple of weeks since the changes have happened here, yeah. I've just discovered there's a whole world out there between 5 and 7.30 at night <laughs> that I was never usually a part of. You know, we were here. What do you mean it's not question period? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Yeah, and, and so what what happened? What would I do when I get home when it's yeah. not dark? You know, so yeah. a lot of late nights, and I, I did miss time with the kids, but, I you know, I think they understood what, what I did, and I, we, I always kept them sort of in that journey and, you know, and understood that what I thought I had was a, not me personally, but I thought that the reason I was gone was to tell uh, and to show Canadians these important events happening in their lives. So I miss some stuff, but, um, you know, I, uh, I you know, the, family's, the family's tight, the family's good, the kids were there the other night. There is no uh, doubt that your kids and your wife loves you. That was really evident on Wednesday. That was wonderful to see, so, yeah. uh, you know. Um, quickly losing time yeah but the, you understood. know uh, a message for the people that have watched you these many years because you, you mean something to Canadians and I'm sure a lot of people will shed a tear that you're not going to be here day after day yeah and, and probably some of them will be applauding that I'm not here <laughs> <laughs> you know my only my only message is uh, when you tune into CPAC if you tune into CPAC uh, odds are you know why you're doing it mm -hmm. and and keep doing it and spread the word uh, because it is I think, and I've worked at the other two mainstream uh, networks in the country too, or the bigger ones, and you know, um, there is something special about what we do here in terms of you know, um, letting Canadians see it for themselves, giving them a front row seat, and, and not trying to tell them what to think, but giving them uh, all of the information they need to come to their own conclusions. So that's what I would say. Uh, hope you think we're valuable, hope you keep watching. and. Uh, Make sure you do and keep tuning into this guy. He'll be, it'll be so much better than what you had with me. <laughs> no, no. Although I will say, because of the great work you've done and your dedication, uh, it, when, when CPAC came to me, it was a very obvious choice. I, I, in great awe and respect of your work. So uh, thank you. Well, the fe feeling's mutual. And thanks so much for coming to join the team and take us to great heights. Yeah, well, I'll be calling you from time to time. Uh, Peter Van <laughs> thanks, Dusen, Michael. thank you. Congratulations thank on the retirement. Thank you. And that was my earlier conversation with Peter Van Dusen. Uh, we're going to miss him around here. Uh, I'm Michael Serapio. Thank you for joining us today. For everyone here at CPAC, have a great weekend. We'll see you tomorrow.